0: Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have part three of our five-part series focused around the first few weeks in the 2003 invasion of Iraq. I'll back up a little bit and talk about this little mini series you're working on. Historically, with war stories, I've bounced around. We've gone from Korean War one day to World War I the next, and then to Vietnam or Afghanistan. And each time trying to provide, trying to provide a little background context. But I understand that at some point we're hearing the same thing over and over again. So I thought it might be useful to, to really zero in on a short period of time within an overall conflict, maybe a battle maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months. And that way, we can continue to tell one story after another, but it'll flow chronologically. might make a little more sense if you go, you know, if you listen to episode one, then two, then three, then four, then five. And for the first portion or the first one of these little mini series, we're looking at the first few weeks of the war in Iraq. That's going to be late March to about mid-April of 2003. Now, In episode one, we spent a lot of time talking about the buildup to war, what got us into Iraq in the first place, kind of the mentality of the United States at that point. We dove into the first major Marine contact, took place during the Battle of Nasseria in southern Iraq, and we talked about hospital apprentice Luis Fonseca, who was awarded the Navy Cross as a corpsman for saving lives on the battlefield that day. From there, the Marines continued to push north. And that brought us into episode two, where we started to see a little bit of a shift where the Iraqi resistance started to shift a little bit more into the unconventional territory. So there were still tanks and armored personnel carriers and artillery pieces all over the battlefield still being widely used. But the Iraq resistance started to recognize the really the capabilities and the effectiveness of maybe trying to blend in with the population a little bit more, or hit and run tactics, or ambushes along the roadways. That led us into talking about First Lieutenant Brian Chantosh, who was serving a Third Battalion, Fifth Marines, as they led the Marine column north to Baghdad, and on twenty-five March ran into an ambush of a couple hundred, around two hundred enemy fighters hold up in a ditch line and along berms on the side of the road. And they just started hammering the Marine position. So Shantosh um, directed his gun truck, his Humvee to drive into the teeth of the fight. He dismounted and just started clearing the trench, the the drainage system there of enemy fighters. His story is crazy. It's right out of a movie. He went through his entire, he went through his rifle until it jammed, then went through all ammunition in his sidearm picked up two separate AK-47s from, from enemy soldiers that he had killed, used those to continue clearing the trench, even fired an RPG, figured it out on the fly before moving back to his truck and continuing the march north to Baghdad. Now we're going to jump forward a little bit today in order to talk about Sergeant Scott Montoya, who's serving with the 2nd Battalion, 23rd Marines. We're going to talk about actions of his and that unit on 8 and 9 April 2003. And a couple notes before we dive in there. This is the third story in a row that we've talked about the Marines or Marine units, um, you know, corpsmen tied in with the Marines and then two Marines during the initial invasion. This was one part of the fight. There were a lot of other elements involved, and this wasn't intentional, um, but we are going to swing back a little bit. We're going to talk about a 101st Airborne soldier from the U.S. Army in the next episode and try to uh, pull from the other services as we continue telling these stories. The second part that's worth noting before we dive in is that this miniseries is not designed to cover everything that happened between the, you know, during this window of time from late March to, to mid April. There's going to be some major battles we just skip over because we've either already talked about those in previous episodes, or maybe we'll save them for a future kind of series. But for instance, we haven't even touched on the third infantry division and they're leading, one of, they're, they're leading the armored columns um, across Iraq into Baghdad. It's the main effort of the invasion force, and we haven't talked about them yet. So these miniseries aren't necessarily designed to tell the, the complete history of one of these events, but to focus in on a certain storyline in one capacity or another. Now, as the Marines are moving, as we leave, you know, uh, Lieutenant Shantash's story on 25 March, they continue their movement north to Baghdad. And Baghdad is the goal. Baghdad is the goal because we have this idea of cutting the head off the snake. Snake being, you know, the head of the snake being Saddam and the Baath Party leadership. Saddam's not super popular in Iraq. He's got a lot of supporters, but a a general concept here is if we can remove that dictator and his support structure, it will pave the way. It'll be the, you know, we'll open the door at least to reform across the country and we can start aligning the rest of Iraq towards a, you know, after Saddam future. So it's not about taking, there's a lot of, a lot of little goals across the country, securing oil fields, securing airfields, securing ports, all these other things. But really we're trying to get to Baghdad to topple Saddam and his regime as fast as possible to the point where in many cases we're going to bypass entire cities and towns that won't see American troops or coalition troops until after you know the fall of Baghdad in in mid-April. Now, as the Marines are moving north, they're going to continue to face resistance. And this is one of the, you know, maybe metrics is the way to put it. Does Saddam still hold legitimacy? Does he still hold power? And one of the ways we're looking at that is if we're still running into Iraqi forces that are standing and fighting and if there are still defensive positions being put in and troops being shut to the front line, people essentially willing to fight and die on behalf of Saddam, we've got a pretty good idea that you know the coalition has not yet been recognized as winning, as, as having um, any sort of control, which makes sense. We're just a couple weeks into the fight. But that's going to be a theme throughout April and, and further, probably, quite frankly, for, for years to come after this. So the Marines are facing contact all up and down the highway as they move into Baghdad and as they near the outskirts towards the beginning of April they get ready to split into a couple different columns to assault really south, southeastern, eastern Baghdad from a couple different avenues of approach. Now, as they've moved along this march, they've been rotating units from the front. Now they're not getting very far back. It's not like the unit that's in the middle of the fight uh moves back to Kuwait for some R&R, but the duty, the, the responsibility of being the lead element in a column or the, even the lead battalion, it takes its toll. Those are the vehicles that are going to take the most damage in terms of enemy fire, RPGs, um, has the highest likelihood of casualties. You know, you're the first one in the breach to, to find the enemy soldiers. You're likely going to encounter more ambushes than the folks in the rear. And just the mental psychological toll on top of any casualties you're taking, wounded, wounded or killed Marines. So it's not uncommon. It's pretty standard practice to rotate that unit out in some capacity, right? So as they're rotating these units through, they get to the outskirts of Baghdad and the next one up that has been utilized in the fight already, but a unit that is tasked with leading one of the pushes into Baghdad is the 23rd Marine Regiment. Now the 23rd Marine Regiment is unique. Well, not, not maybe that's not the right way to say it. They're different than some of these other units. The 23rd is a reserve unit, which means that they're not full-time Marines. They're not full-time warriors. They're part-time. They get together 40, 50, 60 days a year, maybe, to maintain a level of proficiency to where if they're called upon, they can serve. And in 2003, they were activated to help with this invasion of, of Iraq. Now, in a perfect world, our reserve and our guard units can be plugged in anywhere in the conventional overall larger conventional military. If you're a general, that's what you want, right? You don't want to have a little asterisk by um, the 23rd Marines and say, well, that's a reserve unit. So let's not treat them the same as the first Marines. It, It hampers your planning. It makes things a lot harder and complicated. So the perfect world, again, all are being equal. A Marine regiment is a Marine regiment. A Marine battalion is a Marine battalion. End of story. Now, this isn't a perfect world. This is combat. This is war. And we're not out there to to allow the most people to participate. We're trying to win this war and we're trying to lose as few American lives as possible in the process. So nobody would bat an eye, and it wouldn't have even been a little bit crazy if the military leadership would have said, as we continue this push, we need somebody to guard prisoners. It's a real task has to be done. And they tap the, tw- and they could tap the 23rd Marines or any reserve unit or guard unit. That's not, it's not crazy to do that. These tasks that are a little off the front lines, maybe not engaging enemy forces like at the tip of the spear. It's still a job that has to be done. It's still a really important job. But, but if, if the leadership were tapping guard and reserve units to do that, it wouldn't have raised an eyebrow. There's probably a good argument to do that, right? Hey, they should be tied in exactly like these other units, but is this the time to find out? Do we really want to know right now? But what I love about this story, and it ties into Sergeant Scott Montoya serving with the 2nd Battalion, 23rd Marine Regiment during this invasion, is they did get the call. The 23rd Marines got the call. They weren't in the rear guarding prisoners. They were tasked with continuing the push into Baghdad. Not a cakewalk mission. Not we expect the enemy to topple over. We're expecting heavy resistance. We're expecting a fight. And the 23rd Marines, the reserve unit, is going to be one of those tapped to lead the charge. That's awesome. There's your confidence in the reserve units of the United States military. Now, on April 8th and 9th, as they start to push into the east, I don't know the, the specific mission task they had but it's essentially a movement of contact. They know that's happening. They know that they're moving into an area that's going to be held by the enemy. They know they're going to be fired upon. They know they're going to get shot at. They know they're going to probably be ambushed at some point. And they they start to push into really from the southeastern portion of Baghdad. And the thing that they're looking for is referred to as the Directorate of General Security is kind of their, their aim point, if you will. It's a nasty place. That's the internal intelligence division for Saddam and his regime. So there was a lot of lot of nasty things to the Iraqi people that emanated from this internal intelligence security branch of the organization. So they're looking for it. And it's not where it should be on a map. But Alpha Company finds it. They find it because that's where the enemy uh, opens up. And they're dug in. And there's a lot of them. Now, it's worth noting at this point in the conflict, we're still facing... Hardened, professional, trained Iraqi soldiers. As the as the war continues and progresses, you're gonna see more and more, you know, homegrown militia. And it you'll still see it at this point in the war, but but maybe not at the same capacity of a neighborhood watch, if you will. Somebody dusts off their old AK-47 and they're gonna repel the invaders. That's still a thing. You'll probably even see some foreign fighters here. But in large part, the forces that the twenty third that the twenty-third Marines run into in eastern Baghdad are Iraqi soldiers, professional Iraqi soldiers. They can shoot, they can maneuver, they can communicate. They're deadly. They know what they're doing. Alpha Company finds the enemy. Fox Company is brought up to reinforce and start to push through and clear this area. And it's when Fox Company gets up there that this fight really materializes. So, you know, both sides have to make a decision. Is this going to be an area that we move through? Is this going to be an area we stand and fight? And the Marines are pushing through. They're absolutely going to take this ground. And this appears to be a spot where the Iraqi resistance said, we're going to hold our ground. The the reports are that over 100 um, Iraqi fighters are taking place in this engagement. Small arms, machine guns, RPGs raining down all around this directorate of general security as Alpha and Fox Company move up. One of the elements that's going to be moved up into the fight includes Sergeant Scott Montoya Scott Montoya is a scout sniper. And when he gets up into the fight, supporting Alpha and Fox company, he's going to arrive on scene and start kind of directing the engagement, which isn't crazy. It's it's, it makes sense. He's able to learn that there's an engagement going on. There's a firefight up ahead. He's able to start to think about what he's going to do. Gather his men, get his stuff ready, start to move into, into the fire. And as he gets up there, he has the ability to kind of survey the situation and maybe move a machine gun team or take another building for a different, different angle of fire into the enemy, uh, into the enemy positions. Think of it like you can kind of step back from any sort of chaos. And there's a period of time where when you're arriving on scene, you might be able to help make, you know, maybe more rational or calm decisions as opposed to the people in Alpha and Fox company that got hit and got hit hard from multiple directions. Montoya is directing this fight. And as he's doing this, he looks out into the street and sees a a vehicle with an Iraqi civilian wounded, trapped, trapped between these two warring factions. And you got to feel for this guy. You got to how many Iraqi civilians, innocent Iraqi civilians, found themselves in situations like this. They may not have been fans of Saddam. His family may have suffered under Saddam. But now he's literally in between. Iraqi fighters, maybe some foreign fighters that don't care about him living or dying, and American Marines fighting for their lives, what do you do? Where do you go? And remember, many of these Iraqi fighters at this time are not wearing uniforms. They're donning civilian attire, so he kind of looks like them. It, it's it's a tough spot to be in. You got to feel for the guy, the innocent, presumably innocent Iraqi civilian stuck in the middle of the street. And, and I have to say that if he were to be shot and killed— in the street that day. It's tragic. It's sad. But it's war. It would have been chalked up to collateral damage. Nobody would have gone on trial. There wouldn't have been a hearing. There wouldn't have even been a report. This is an invasion of a country. It's kinetic. There's bullets flying all around. There's shrapnel going in every direction. There's Marines being wounded and killed. If an Iraqi civilian is found dead, there's not a Marine that's going to be drugged in front of a court-martial. And certainly not going to be Sergeant Scott Montoya. That doesn't matter. He sees this Iraqi in the street and he takes action. So, this Iraqi male, who for all he knows could have been shuttling ammunition to the people they're fighting right now, doesn't matter. Wounded Iraqi civilian in the street, Montoya leaves the protection of the buildings and moves out into the exposed street, and there's bullets flying everywhere bullets, RPGs. Uh, machine gun rounds impacting all throughout the place. Montoya runs through all of that to the Iraqi civilian, pulls him back The the to get back to a safe position is around 500 meters in the middle of this fight. Pulls him back through the fire, drops him in an area to start receiving care and treatment. It's a man he never knew, um, maybe never saw again in his life. Um, certainly not going to get a letter from that man's family, but it didn't matter. To, to Sergeant Scott Montoya that was an innocent civilian caught on the battlefield and he risked his life to go get him. That's kind of crazy if you just stop right there to, to risk your life for an innocent civilian in the middle of a fight when that's an impressive act. Now, while he's out there and while he's in this, this area that's just well, let me step back one second. This is a theme I'll say that you see throughout military history is the idea that people in combat will do something, a daring act, just like Montoya did running out into the street to save this Iraqi civilian. And then after the fact kind of realize it, that that was a roll of the dice. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of luck involved in some of these situations and it doesn't matter how fast you are or how quickly you can bound from one truck to the next. It doesn't matter how good of a shot you are or how well, out, how well you've thought out your plan to get across this kill zone, there's some luck involved in a combat zone when there's that much lead flying through the air. And often in warfare, you will hear somebody after they do something like that one time say, would never do that today. You know, you hear it. I think my, some of my favorite examples are around D-Day, 1944, when soldiers landed on Omaha or landed on, on beaches all up and down Normandy. Many of them were recorded later in life or later even in the war saying, I did things on that day I would never do again because I recognize that there's, you, know, you can only roll those dice so many times. That's not to downplay or diminish any of these heroic acts that people, you know, just what, just running out into fire like Scott Montoya just did is an incredibly heroic act by itself if you were to stop there. So I don't mean to diminish those, but what makes it even more incredible and what I love about his story is that he's alternating. He's alternating between Directing this kinetic engagement, laying down machine gun fire, moving his teams as needed to kill enemy soldiers, and then stopping, at a heartbeat, to run out and save lives. He transitioned seamlessly between these two. Now, he's moved into this kill zone and brought this Iraqi civilian back out, but he's not done. Because when he looked out there, he saw some of his wounded brothers. Marines that were also stuck, unable to get back, which makes sense because when these fights kick off, it's not as though you're in a, 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 perfectly set line. And as soon as the bullets start flying, people take cover or they move or they, they get hit and they have to, to crawl to a certain position. So nonetheless, Montoya sees Marines that are out there. And if he's going to run through enemy fire to rescue us or Iraqi civilian he's never met before, you better believe he's going back out there to get one of his fellow Marines. He moves back out under fire again, risking his life again. Finds a wounded Marine, helps him back to cover. But He doesn't stop there. After dropping the Marine off and and checking again on his men, Montoya returns into the kill zone. And remember, this is an urban environment. This isn't like a World War I trench system where you can see, hey, I know the enemy is pretty well lined up over there by those trees. They could be anywhere. There could be an AK-47 in every window, a machine gun poking out of every door, an enemy waiting in any alley, RPGs on rooftops, anywhere. The threat could be anywhere. And it doesn't matter how long you've sat there and watched the fight. In a situation like this where the city is inhabited and they're, they're, they're employing more and more unconventional tactics, it wouldn't have been crazy if Montoya took one step out and got shot from another direction. They weren't even looking. The enemy could be anywhere. And now Montoya's run out twice in the middle of the street, but he goes a third time. A third time because there's still wounded Marines in the battlefield. He runs out this third time, finds a Marine's been shot in the leg and is bleeding profusely, helps strip him of his gear, picks him up, carries him back to an aid station to start receiving treatment. Carrying somebody any distance is is a challenge, but the thought of in the midst of that firefight with rounds flying all around, again, a roll of the dice, there's bullets everywhere. Picking somebody up and running 500 meters is, uh, it's, a, it's impressive to say the least. But remember, Montoya is not going to leave a single man out there. And there's still yet one more Marine that needs to be rescued. A Marine that was dazed by a concussion, by the concussion of a grenade. A little disoriented, may not know where he is. You'll call it slightly wounded, maybe. Um, Stuck. Trapped. Now, think if you're that Marine. You don't know where you are. You're cut off from your people. You're cut off from your folks. Your folks. You're cut off from the rest of your unit. Maybe wounded. How long before you start having the thoughts of, Capture. I could be captured. And if I'm captured, I could be tortured or killed. He's out there by himself. Maybe thinking about he'll never see his family again. Maybe not see his kids. Maybe not even see his brother Marines, brother and sister Marines ever again. Do they even know where he is? What can he do? Has he done everything? Did he fail? Is it his fault? Think of what's running through a head running through your head, running through my head when you're stuck in that situation. Gunfire all around, explosions all around, cut off, trapped, confused, scared. And then around the corner comes Sergeant Scott Montoya. He knew you were out there. He found you. Montoya finds this this last Marine and picks him up and provides cover as they move back to the rest of the Marine positions, the strong point. Just... If that's you, if that's me, in that situation, cut off, trapped, alone. And someone like Sergeant Scott Montoya comes around the corner and says, it's okay, we got you. Come on, let's go. That might be the best moment of my life. That's going to be a hard one to beat. Because I don't think it's crazy that they were spending time thinking about the worst case scenario. And seeing Sergeant Montoya turn that corner is going to be all the difference in the world. Montoya has now made four trips out into this kill zone, deadly, deadly streets of Baghdad with bullets, RPGs, and shrapnel flying in every direction. But he doesn't just drop the soldiers off at the the casualty collection point. He ensures that each is is getting the care they're needed and makes sure that the, the evacuations are ordered. For his actions that day, Sergeant Scott Montoya would be awarded the Navy Cross. That is second only to the Medal of Honor in terms of Valor Wars in the United States military. And I think the the way to wrap this up today is to say that, I I think it goes without saying, I think it's understood, but I'm going to reiterate it just in case. There was no directive and no order for Montoya to go do that. And that's one of the, I think I'll say beautiful things that you'll come across in some of these horrific situations in combat and in war. It doesn't. It often doesn't take an order from an officer or a directive from on high to go pull somebody off the battlefield. That's a risky task. It's something where you could very quickly, very easily, um, lose your own life. Yet what you see over and over and over again are people like Sergeant Scott Montoya that don't wait to be ordered to do that. They see a civilian caught in the crossfire and they risk their life. They see a Marine wounded, alone, stuck. He risks his life. See somebody days from a concussion blast. He risks his life. Nobody is making him do that. That's in his core, knowing that that's what he's there to do. And I, and I love the back and forth in this story of directing the kinetic engagement and then stopping and showing the Incredible love for his brothers-in-arms to risk it all to go out there and pull them from the battlefield. That'll do it for part three of our five-part series focused on the 2003, the first few weeks of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Coming up next, we'll shift a little bit further west to the Army's sector of the fight and talk about a combat medic with the 101st Airborne Division.